invite you to turn to the scriptures to Genesis 49 and 50. We come closer to the end of Genesis, but the sermon tonight does not complete it. We look at the death and burial of Jacob. Last time we saw Father Jacob blessing his 12 sons, actually prophesying of their futures. And now we come to his charge to them that he should be buried in Canaan and then the funeral procession up to Canaan. So, Genesis 49, at verse 28, it says that he blessed each one of his sons according to his own blessing. And then at Genesis 49, verse 29, we read this portion of the word of Christ Jesus. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Hath. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drove his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now, when the days of his mourning were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, They said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, 
and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing on it. Gracious God in heaven, wondrous are your works. Awesome are your deeds to the sons of men. May we behold the glory of our Lord Christ as we see him march through history with his people, working out the sovereign purposes of God. Grant us, O Lord, the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to believe. And may you be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, saints of God, if the Lord should tarry, then we will all face our own death. Some of you may know tonight exactly where you plan to be buried. Maybe you have purchased the burial plot. Some maybe have never considered the question, haven't begun to to think of that. And the question of where one should be buried can actually be a little perplexing. If you've moved geographically from one location to another, where should you be buried? If you've been married more than once, maybe that's a difficult question. If you if you had four wives at one time, then I imagine that's an especially difficult question, Jacob having four wives or two wives and two concubines. In any case, burial is probably not our favorite topic, and yet tonight in God's province we stand again at a graveside. And it's actually rather sad, isn't it, as we come to the book of Genesis that we're standing at a grave Because the book of Genesis began with the creation of humanity. Man made to live and not die. Man made in the very likeness of God to know him and love him and live with him eternally. In the opening chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve were not found shopping for burial plots, were they? They weren't found contemplating their own deaths. But the book that begins with life ends with death, this death of Jacob, and then the very last verses of Genesis, the death of Joseph. And so the book that at the beginning had given the warning, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die, has proven that threat, hasn't it? Because through the marching of all these years, it's been death upon death. In chapter 5, we have the the genealogy of Adam, and -and so-and-so lived so many years, and he died, and -and so-and-so lived so many years, and he died, and on and on it goes. And you come to the end of Genesis, and it's still happening. People are still dying. Death has invaded this good world of God, and we might think we haven't gotten very far. We're still at the grave. But Genesis is not written as a word of discouragement, is it? Edmund Clowney, in his excellent book, The Unfolding Mystery, Discovering Christ in the Old Testament, writes, Yet Genesis was not written as a death knell tolling the doom of human sin. It was written to trace the hope of God's deliverance, his promise of salvation. If God was going to leave us to death, he didn't need to write this book, did he? But God's written this book because God didn't leave us to our death. He has intervened to bring about life. 
And so a great deal has actually taken place in the book of Genesis since the entrance of death. God has been at work since Genesis 3 when he, he came to Adam and Eve and he proclaimed that, that, that opening promise that there would be a son of the woman who would crush the serpent, who would intervene in this evil world and reverse the effects of the kingdom of death. And God has been at work on behalf of humanity that rebelled and loved darkness. God has been at work on a people that have come under his wrath. And God has chosen this family of all the families upon earth, this family of Abraham. And God has chosen Isaac, the son of Abraham. And God has chosen Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And God has chosen Joseph, the great-grandson. And God has been at work here, hasn't he, to bring about through the womb of this family a Savior who will taste death for all God's people and bring them life. And so faith in this Savior, Jesus Christ, changes everything then because faith in the promise means we have a future and therefore we have a hope and that hope affects our lives. It's in gospel hope that we can live in peace and die in peace because we know that there's a hereafter. And so our lives are not overcome with sorrow and despair and hopelessness, but trusting in the promises, trusting in the great, great grandson of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know there's a future. So we will face death if Christ tarries. Someone said that in earlier generations they prepared for death and we, we sort of tried to avoid it. But we are to die well, we're to live well, and we are to die well. And the secret to both is hope in Christ. Death is a real enemy, shouldn't be underestimated, but death doesn't need to make us tremble because Christ overcomes death. And so what has God done now as we come to the end of Genesis here? What has God done across all of these pages? Well, I submit to you tonight that God has created a people of hope. We should come to... To the closing chapters of Genesis here, God reveals that he and his recreative power has actually produced a people with a living hope. And that's a glorious thing. It's a new humanity. It's a new race, a people of a living hope, living in a world of death. And I want you to see tonight, first of all, that hope is professed by Father Jacob in these burial instructions. And then hope is confirmed by this funeral procession. First of all, hope is professed in this burial instruction. As Jacob, Father Jacob here speaks his last words to his sons lying on his deathbed, he gives a rather clear and forceful command about where he's to be buried. Maybe you heard people say, you know, talking about burial and cremation and all of that, things like, well, I don't care what you do with me after death, I'm going to be gone, it doesn't matter to me. But that's not at all the sentiment of Father Jacob, is it? He is, he is very, very forceful. In fact, earlier, remember back in chapter 47, he had made Joseph in particular swear an oath that he would not bury his father in Egypt. He'd carry him up to Canaan. And now, having gathered all his sons, Jacob makes all of them know this is his wish and his will. He gives very explicit instructions here as to where he's to be buried. He's to be laid to rest with his fathers in the cave that's in the field that Abraham purchased from Ephron the Hittite. It is the place where Abraham was buried and his wife Sarah, the grandparents of Jacob. It is the place where Isaac was buried and his wife Rebekah, the parents of Jacob. And it's the place where Jacob's wife Leah was buried. 
Now, what was so important about being buried there? Well, the point is that despite all the riches of Egypt, Jacob's son here, Joseph, remembers the prime minister, ruler in Egypt, despite the land of Goshen having been given to, to the church of God, this family must never consider its inheritance to be in Egypt. Egypt is not their home, but their future lie elsewhere. God promised them the land of Canaan. That was their inheritance, their possession. And that field and cave of which Jacob speaks, that, that Abraham, remember, had purchased from the Hittite, was the only piece of that land that the church presently owned. It was legally purchased. And that cave and that field were the first fruits, the sign and the pledge and the guarantee that the rest would come. And so Jacob wants his body to lie in that land where God will gather all of his children. Jacob is not superstitious to think of his bodies in the land of Canaan. He's, he's simply closer to God that way. Rather, in his death, he wants to lay claim to the promise God has made. And I think he wants to renew that memory of God's promise among his sons so that they will aspire to that as they carry up their father, as they plant him in the cave, in the land of Canaan, as they go home and remember where their father is, their hearts must look forward and long for that inheritance God has promised. And so Jacob is a work of God here, isn't he, in the hope that he has, and that he believes even in the midst of death, that God has now, it's revealed, produced a line of hope in this world that is simply glorious. God has a people upon the earth that are clinging to him and longing for him. And you remember the writer of Hebrews will speak of these patriarchs and say, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, speaking here of Ur the Chaldeans, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They died in faith, not yet having received the promise, but having seen them from a long ways off. And they said, we're pilgrims. This is not our home. We are looking ahead to the destiny God has for us. And the writer of Hebrews says it wasn't even actually the land of Canaan. It was the city God has prepared for them was the new heavens and the new earth. So Father Jacob here dies in hope that there is a hereafter. And yet it's amazing, isn't it? Because, because this, this confidence, this hope, was not something he was born with. It has been years of struggle and sorrow in the life of Jacob, 147 years, in which there was this revelation of his own sins, his own weakness, his own attempts to, to fulfill the promises Jacob was the deceiver. He was the, the heel grasper. He came out of the womb grabbing his, his brother's heel, Esau, who tried to usurp his brother's place with 
with his mother and him conspiring to deceive father Isaac to take hold of the birthright. This is is Jacob who's done a lot of twisted things, who has not waited upon the Lord, who's, who's had to be corrected by God over and over again, but he's been learning and learning and learning through this the true source of blessing, which is God himself. And after this rather painful and difficult life, he has learned that the source of blessing is God and is the blessing beyond all blessings. He has learned to wait on the Lord, and he dies now in hope. It's been worth all the hard lessons. It's been worth all the hard lessons. You know, Jacob at this point would not exchange this hope for anything. Right, if, if this is what it took to bring Father Jacob to the point that he could die in peace and say, this is my hope, this is my assurance, this is my confidence, this is my God. Then all the trials he's been through, his brothers attempt to kill him, his father Laban tricking him and chasing after him to kill him, it's all been worth it. There is life beyond the grave. Jesus, remember later, when the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection of the dead, came to Jesus with that that great problem. Seven brothers, each of whom married the same woman. After each brother died, the next one married her. So seven brothers all had been married to this one woman. Well, Well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus, you know, replied in Mark chapter 12 that you're mistaken. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. God of the living. God tonight is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is the God of the living. These men live because Christ. So Jacob can face death unafraid. God has prepared a home for him. And he can face death not only unafraid but satisfied because he knows the Lord of blessing. How do you look at death tonight, brothers and sisters, as the people of God? Are you ready to die tonight? Have you settled in your mind what is the source of happiness? Do you have it settled in your mind what is the the greatest blessing? Can we in the midst of death testify that there's just one thing that I need? One request that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as we say. We say that, that the one thing I'm looking forward to is my inheritance, and my inheritance is God himself. And we say, for instance, with, with Psalm 16, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. 
For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, death, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is it settled in your mind tonight beyond a shadow of a doubt that God as your inheritance is your great good, the greatest good that anyone could possibly have, and that if you have him, you have a good inheritance? Jacob's composure is remarkable, isn't it? That after he commands his sons to bury him in Canaan, then verse 33, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. What composure, what, what strength and presence of mind as he approaches death. John Calvin says he courageously fulfilled the prophetic office enjoined upon him. Jacob demonstrated a clear conscience that the matter was altogether settled. Despite all my twistings, despite all my failures, despite all my sins, this I know, I belong to God. And I will receive my inheritance. He's able to leave the world without terror. You know, our world is, is consumed with the idea of euthanasia, which doesn't mean young people in Asia. Euthanasia, spelled differently, you know, speaks about, well, literally it means Good death, a good death. And according to, to those who promote euthanasia, what's a good death? Well, it's a death to die in which you avoid pain and suffering. You end your life because you, you have a terminal disease. And you're not going to ever be healthy again. Maybe there's suffering ahead, and so you, you end your life, you take your life when you want to die or when somebody wants you to die. Philip Evison, whose commentary has helped me out a lot tonight, he says, People who suggest such ideas as euthanasia express their opposition to God and fail to appreciate the awful suffering that awaits unbelievers after death. It is those who die trusting God who die well. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Tonight it reveals just how much it's a book of beginnings because it's not just about the beginning of creation. God spoke and it was. But this is the book of beginnings concerning the new creation. That God has intervened in a people who have come under the curse of death with the promise of life, and he has changed them. First Peter says we've been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God has created, as we see in Father Jacob here, already a new human life, one begotten from the dead, to believe that there is life, who receive life. This is such a unique and wonderful thing. What horrible torments agitate the mind of the wicked when, if they're ever sober enough, they consider the reality they must stand before the living God and give an account. Can you imagine to be on your deathbed? And even if you only thought maybe, 
Maybe I might have to stand before the Almighty God and give an account and face his judgment. Imagine the terror. It's no wonder people intoxicate themselves in so many different ways and seek to avoid any mention of death. But how different for those who know a righteousness that is not their own, what the Reformers called an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. That means that we have a righteousness in which to stand before God that's not of ourselves, but has been credited or imputed to us by another. We have the righteousness of God himself, God's own son, the Christ who kept all the commands for us, who died bearing all of the curse for our sins, and who imputes to us his righteousness, that we may stand before God forgiven and perfectly obedient to all of God's commandments so far as his law is concerned. Christ who bore the agonies of hell. It's Christ who suffered the curse. It's Christ who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And having said it is finished, he'd paid the price. Then he could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he opened that door for all of us to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and hope that you will not leave my flesh in corruption, but that you will lift me up to glory. Because we believe on the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we are able to go willingly to God because we are sure that there is a hereafter. We can say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so Jacob's composure is not altogether foreign to to the church that comes after him, but believers may lay down their head in peace. And our guarantee tonight is not a field purchased by Ephron the Hittite. But the Bible tells us in the New Testament that our guarantee and pledge is the Holy Spirit poured out upon our hearts, which Ephesians 1 says is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the day of our full redemption. The Holy Spirit in us is the first fruits of the new creation. The Spirit in us is the down payment. We have God in us, the guarantee that we'll be with God forever. So despite all our infirmities and all our sins, we may commit our souls to God and not count death as an overly grievous thing. Because through death now, upon the perfect work of Christ, we enter into our everlasting home prepared for us. Are you prepared tonight to die well? Is it settled in your mind that your great good is to know God through Jesus Christ? And you can say, all of my sins have been satisfied. And all the righteousness I need to be accepted by God has been freely credited to my account. And I may lift my feet into my bed and breathe my last. Because at the moment I breathe my last breath on earth, I breathe my first breath in heaven. I belong to him. My inheritance is secure. The spirit living in my heart causing me to love God and sorrow over my sins is the evidence that I am the Lord's. If that's your hope tonight, then that's a hope that the Lord God loves to confirm. And he confirms that hope for Jacob and all the churches. We see secondly tonight, looking at this funeral procession. 
it's been pointed out that that more room, more text, more space is given in the Bible to Jacob's death and funeral than to any other person in the Bible except the Lord Jesus Christ. God is wanting us to look at this. And what we see after the death of Father Jacob here is that Joseph, chapter 50, verse 1, falls on his father's face and weeps and kisses him. And the New Testament tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we do not grieve as those who have no hope, which doesn't mean that we don't grieve. And so we have to realize that as long as we live on earth until Christ comes, death is an enemy. It is an unnatural thing for soul and body to be separated. It, it sorrows us to see the humiliation of death visited upon any human life, especially upon those we love. When that, when that bond of fellowship now is temporarily separated, it's broken, and we miss that person, and we grieve, and we, we see even Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, of course, grieving and weeping. But God had kept his word to Father Jacob. Remember, he had told Jacob back in chapter 46, before Jacob went down to Egypt, he he said, Joseph, Joseph's hand will close your eyes. And God is faithful to his promises down to the smallest detail. Here is Joseph to close his father's eyes, as it were, to at the moment of death fall upon his father, weeping and kissing him. That's an amazing thing, is that a psalmist says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God is not callous toward the death his people face. He keeps his word down to the smallest detail, and so he will keep every word. In the morning over, Jacob appears remarkable. We read not just that Joseph weeps over him, but we read in verse 3 that 40 days were required for him for embalming him. And he's being embalmed here not by some superstitious way. In fact, people point out that he's embalmed by the physicians, not by the priests with all their pagan ritual. He's embalmed by the physicians, but he's embalmed so he can be transported, presumably, to Canaan. And we, we read that there's actually, at the end of verse 3, that the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Now, scholars tell us that, that the mourning period for a pharaoh was 72 days. And so Jacob here is mourned for about the length of a pharaoh. It's remarkable, isn't it? We know when a U.S. president dies, he lies in state, and there's all the, the time there, the dignitaries come and visit, and and the nation pauses. We think of the death of Queen Elizabeth and all the pomp and ceremony that that went into that. It's a a monumental moment, isn't it? Something is going on here. The father of Joseph, the one who is prime minister, who saved Egypt from starvation, the father of Joseph has died, and he's treated like royalty here. But it's more than that. It's that a world superpower, the the nation of Egypt here is pausing to mourn the death of the father of the Israelite nation. It's as if the whole world, in a way, stops to give attention to the father of the church. And God is, I think, suggesting to us here, he's proclaiming that, that there's something of worldwide significance that's taking place. 
We think nothing much has happened in Genesis. We got one small family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's family goes down to Egypt and there are only 70 people. No big deal. And now Egypt as a nation is mourning the death of Father Jacob. But then something more. Joseph asks Pharaoh if he can take his father's body up to the land of Canaan, the promised land. You might imagine that Joseph might have been a little bit, a little bit tentative. He's going to ask Pharaoh, can we go bury him somewhere else? What, what, Egypt's not good enough for you? The great land of Egypt? And go back to the puny land of Canaan? But Joseph in faith asked the question, and what happens? In God's glorious providence, what, what's the result? Well, it's this, verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph and his brothers and so forth. What an amazing thing. Verse 9, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. What a spectacular procession. you imagine them traveling along the Nile and through the Sinai steps and then up to the land of Canaan? What a, what a sight this must have been. Egypt and and all of their royal colors, Egypt with horses and chariots, protection. you got the troops, the army, Egypt with all the elders of the land. What an amazing thing. That a pagan nation is journeying to the promised land with the church. All of this is prefiguring something, isn't it? foreshadowing something that's going to occur. If you listen to the language that's used in verses 7 through 9 about Pharaoh and then um, reading about verse 8, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. They went up with chariots and horsemen. Can you hear it? The echoes to come in the Exodus. They will go up, but this time... Their little ones and their flocks and herds will go with them. They will go up, but this time they won't be escorted by chariots and horsemen. They'll be chased by horses and chariots. God's going to do it again, isn't he? Jacob's death was a kind of acted out prophecy of what was coming. God who moved Pharaoh in Egypt for the sake of his church would again move the heart of Pharaoh, a different Pharaoh, to let his people go again. And God who caused them to weep for Father Jacob will make Egypt weep for the death of their firstborn sons. And the sons of Jacob for the next 400 years, because you know they're going to become enslaved in Egypt, but for the next 400 years as they live in Egypt, they'll be able to tell their children, you know what God did? Do you know that when Grandpa Jake died, Egypt, the elders of Egypt, the army of Egypt, escorted us up to the grave? All of Egypt honored Father Jacob. And it's interesting that in the, the route that they take to the land of Canaan was not the direct route up from the south into the land of Canaan, but they actually go around 
and enter from the east side to cross the Jordan. And scholars say, why was that? There must have been some political reason. They couldn't go on the most direct route. They had to go around. But whatever the case, the route they took was the route the Exodus would follow. And God has proclaimed to his people he's going to do it all again. And he's going to do it in a more glorious way. He's going to bring his people up to the land of promise. And what comfort as the first audience of this book, the Israelites in the wilderness, heard now from the pen of Moses these words being read to them. To hear the story of what God did for us. And to see God has done it again. Here we are in the wilderness. God has brought us out again. And we've escaped the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. God moved the Egyptians to let us go. We've come out with great riches. And yet that exodus was only an acted out prophecy of a greater exodus, wasn't it? The exodus under Moses itself was a paradigm pointing forward to an even greater exodus. The the prophets foretold a day that would come when the whole world, the nations would come to the land of Canaan. And in fact, they would be escorted to their inheritance from all the nations upon horses and in chariots, Isaiah 66.20. But ultimately, that comes in Jesus Christ. As Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration is visiting with Moses and Elijah, we read that they spoke to Christ about the Exodus. They spoke to Jesus about the Exodus he would bring. That by his death and resurrection, he'd bring his people out of slavery to sin and Satan and death and open a new way for them. God would bring the greatest confirmation to our hope. And he has. The great confirmation to, to Jacob's professed hope is not this funeral procession, but the great confirmation of the hope we have tonight is that Jesus Christ died and was laid in the tomb and has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. And when we lay a believer's body in the ground today, we lay it in with hope. And we know more than Father Jacob knew because we stand on this side of the victory of our Lord Jesus who has led the greatest exodus, who has triumphed over principalities and powers. And yet we wait for the last enemy of death to be put beneath Christ's feet. As we see in Genesis here that God has done a marvelous thing. Don't say that we're no further when we started, that we soon came to death in Genesis, that we read a whole genealogy of death in Genesis 5, and now nothing has happened, no. Something glorious has happened. The book of New Beginnings tells us the beginning of a new humanity, a new people who look past death in hope to the resurrection of the dead and to the city that God has prepared for them. As you look at your life tonight, is it evident to you that you are part of that new humanity, that you are living in hope and you plan to die in hope? That you're part of the new thing God is doing upon the earth. That you see in Jesus Christ's exodus your future. 
that as he was laid in the tomb and raised from the dead, so will I. Are you able to say with Father Jacob, I refuse to be buried in Egypt. This is not my home. I refuse to to say to the world, I don't care if, if, if someone's the king of the world. I don't care if they're the pharaoh. I don't care if they own millions and billions. This world's not my home. This is not my hope. Don't give me a tomb. Don't give me a pyramid in Egypt. I must be buried in Canaan. That's where my hope lies. Peter says we're going to be gotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then the rest of the letter of 1 Peter tells us what it means to look and live like a person of hope. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, As in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. He goes on to say, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men but for the will of God we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness lust drunkenness revelries drinking parties and abominable idolatries in regard to these they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation Peter's saying something's happened among you Gentiles. You used to get drunk and engage in sexual morality like the world did. But you've been begotten to a living hope. And so Peter says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your souls. Live lives of hope among the world. So 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, the children of Jacob live in hope. And if you live in hope, then you live different from the world. And where the world says, I have no hope, so I'm going to get drunk. I have no hope, so I'm just going to indulge the appetites of my flesh. The believer says, I will be holy because I'm seeking the face of a holy God. And if you live that way, you live in hope, then Peter says, the world's going to say, this is strange. Why don't you guys ever have any fun? Why don't you come to our parties? And then we'll say to the world, oh, we have fun that you know nothing about. Let me tell you about my hope. Is that your life? Is your life different from the world? Sometimes we grieve the world doesn't ask us more questions. But maybe we have to begin by asking, am I living a life that's different enough from the world? Have I lived in such a way that it appears Egypt is my home? Or am I living in such a strange way? I mean, think of that procession going up. All of Canaan stood still and said, what is this? This great morning of Egypt. We've never seen anything like this. This grand procession up into our land to bury a body. 
But you see, that's what the world should say as they look upon the church. What is this? Who are these strange people? And then we say, we're the people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have worked in our hearts a new and a living hope. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given to us what we would never know in and of ourselves. That you have taken our hearts and affection from the world and you have set them in a new place. That you've taken us from a love of death to give us a love of life. That you have rescued us from the slavery of sin to bring us into the liberty of the Lord Jesus. Well, God in heaven, we praise you that you began a new work upon the earth as evidenced in Father Jacob. And we pray, Lord, as the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that we, Father, may glorify you by walking in hope, living in hope, and dying in hope. Oh, Father, hear our prayer and be merciful to us that you may be glorified upon the earth in the great works you do for the sons of men. Amen.